The following episode contains trigger warnings for discussions of homophobic violence, suicidal tendencies, and conversion therapy. Please proceed with caution. In March 2017, in the Indonesian province of Aceh, two young gay men were found in bed together by a supposed vigilante group of politically conservative local residents. Aceh is the only Indonesian province where Sharia law is enforced, and under this, the two men were each sentenced to 85 lashes for the crime of committing gay sex. Two months later, in the capital of Jakarta, police raided a supposed gay sex party at a sauna, arresting 141 men. This raid was justified under Indonesian anti-pornography laws, which state that putting on any kind of show of a sexual nature where the audience can be considered the public is deemed pornography. Several similar raids followed in 2017, justified through this anti-pornography law and a clause under which an individual can be prosecuted for deviant sexual acts, including lesbian and gay sex. Across the country, reports rolled in. Stories of non-consensual detainment and HIV testing of lesbian and gay community members, suspected lesbians being outed on mainstream media by anti-LGBT groups, and the forcible eviction of vulnerable women from their homes on the basis of rumours about their sexuality. A surge in homophobic and queerphobic sentiment was sweeping the country, and, three years on, the ripples of this social rupture are still being felt. Over the next two episodes, you will be hearing the stories and experiences of young LGBTQ residents on the island of Java, Indonesia. This is part one of Queer Voices in Jogjakarta, and episode eight of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. If you listened to the last episode of this podcast, you'll be aware of the time I spent with activist and prominent social figure Shinta Ratri. During my time with Shinta, I attended one of the events she hosted at a local Christian university. There had been a great mix of attendees of various ages at the event, and as I was walking through the university car park on my way back to my lodgings, I was stopped by one of the attendees. Royce, as she introduced herself, was interested in the work I was doing and wanted to introduce me to a group of her friends, people who she felt I may want to talk to as part of my research. The first indicator that Royce's assumption would turn out to be correct was that she, like myself, is genderqueer. What Royce was offering me was an opportunity to meet with, and talk to, young LGBTQ individuals who had grown up here in Indonesia and were navigating their relationship between their own identity and the current turbulent climate of Indonesia's LGBTQ rights. What I was interested in was their experiences, and in understanding these as best as I could as an outsider, it felt important to consult a local who could get me up to speed before I met with Royce's collection of friends. If you listen to episode 7, you may recognise this voice. Astrid Febrianti, a worker from the reproductive rights NGO PKBE, took the time to visit me and give me some insight into the current state of LGBTQ rights in Indonesia. I may tell this not based on my experience, but I heard it from news and also my friends. So basically, LGBTQ in Indonesia was not really that well accepted because of its cultures and were really binded with Islam religions, which is it for a bit. 
LGBT as a whole. In Indonesia, we called it as a kaum sodomi. And it appears on the Quran that whose LGBT is uh, should be eliminated. So that's why people really condemn the idea of LGBT. But again, people came in spectrum in Indonesia, but majority condemns or doesn't really want to get close with the LGBT related. So basically, that's coming from the majority of society. But if you um, if you're seeing it in a law perspective, you don't really have a specific law that actually forbid LGBT. But but also Jokowi is our current president that last that also being elected this year or last uh, last year. Um, she he said that you know LGBT whatever still need to be protected and you know if they're in trouble we're going to treat them the same because they're part of the citizens. So it's kind of unclear. Do, do you actually support LGBT or do you just see it as a citizens who need to be protected? So basically the president never really addressed LGBT discussions as a whole, but perceptive about that is really harsh. Like some people, since there's growing trends of Islamic conservatism, like some people now just use fail just because it's trend and they also followed trends of you know hating some kind of a culture especially lgbt even my family even though they're quite liberals on all stuff like they're quite the you know the loose family where you don't really have much restrictions comparison to other family but they really had a you know like you should not be an lgbt those, those kind of words so, and it goes to the other people too like they really hate LGBT. They thought that it was a disease. Like, really. Like, um, don't get close to people with LGBT. You might be infected. It's like a, it's like, it's like a transmitted disease, right? They, they thought it was a transmitted disease. That's why, um, even if there's a research, they don't really care about that. Most of people here doesn't really care about that. And they thought that it was a disease. Even if they're not conservative, even if they're in a gray area zones, they also kind of skepticals about LGBT unless they have some educations on it like they uh, their friend is one of the LGBT maybe they might respect them but that that doesn't necessarily mean that they accept them as a normal being get it they always seen it as a weird one or some deviant civilians and back in 2017 I heard that the police it's not a police it's like we call it Satpol Pepe it's a raid that happened into someone residence because they thought they suspect if they were gay and they raided it and they captured some people just because of they suspected as one of the LGBT that used to be in 2007 I don't know how it goes right now but Indonesia is kind of straight, but maybe in Jakarta is liberals, maybe in other cities such as, say, Sidoarjo, where it is called as a one of the Islamic, or Kudus is one of the Islamic city, they really have a high restrictions on it, so that's why even the enforcement, the, the law enforcers are kind of do whatever they want, they arbitrarily um, take the laws, yeah, even if that is not written on law, and they had a you know, um, some kind of a restriction t towards it, but and those law enforcers can do whatever they want. So, yeah, it's kind of unclear about the regulations and also, but what is clear is how people are perceptive about LGBTs, um, not really that acceptable because, yeah, because of the religions and also 
yeah, basically it's because of the religions, because majority is Muslim. But also if you're if you're from another religion, such as Christians, Catholic, we also condemn them. So there's an overlap between religion and state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, we don't really have a clear stance with LGBT. Except for the conservative. This is, maybe it's from grey area people. Maybe they say, as long as they don't do harms, it's fine. They can do whatever they want. But once they do harms, like, maybe they have HIV because LGBT is prone to HIV. They think about that. That's why they're scared of it. There's never been a clear regulations about that. But if you're in, do you know Aceh? Like, it's like in the tip of Indonesia, like. They have their own law called a Sharia law. You heard, you've heard that, Sharia right? law, yes. Yeah, they established their own Sharia law. Yeah, it's actually based on the Helsinki uh, agreement. They have their own law. They establish Sharia law. Even when you had sex, even it's a hetero peoples, they have said it's being condemned. But, <laughs> well, if hetero is being condemned that much, how about LGBT? Yeah, and that's, well, that's going to be even worse. They're, they're going to get, what do you call that? Uh, whipped. What is the perspective of the younger generations regarding LGBTQ plus culture? So, um, younger generations came into spectrums in Indonesia. Since my circle was the one who usually support LGBT, so I take into the perspective of those circle. Um, I might say that most of those people are really okay and they're really accepting them. They, they don't really, really mind. I mean, they're always exploring. Also, they're also exploring their identity sometimes. That's one spectrum of young peoples in Indonesia, which is, you can say it, liberals people. And on the other hand, with the growing trends of Islam um, conservatisms, most people doesn't really accept LGBT. So that's why some people stay close at close at especially when you go when you're still in a school yeah before the higher educations yes it's really you know how do you call that like you're, you're trapped in you, those society like isolated yeah you're isolated basically it's, it's actually based on your town but most town in indonesia is really islam conservative like because of the majority even inside of a state school people who is not a muslim is only like three or five in one classes and that's why people are really affected by their circle who is islam conservatisms so that's why they kind of had a bad perceptive about lgbt because of the quran and second of all they believe that because of the surrounding narrative that lgbtq is bad how does acceptance of lgbtq plus identities vary around indonesia from what you've experienced or been made aware of? Uh, so each town has its own way of doing their religions. Like some of it was really strict, like in every road, they wrote uh, the name of Allah, like 99 names of Allah. They basically put it up on the road. And in another city, that may be different. So it's based on the leaders or even the current administrative of that town. But um, in some town, because some people also agreed and even enjoys that kind of, you know, regulations, like so Islamic, that's why they're okay with it. And they're enjoying because most people here, since people here really, really infest their time a lot with Allah and God, 
it basically is the same yeah um that's why um they're really afraid if they go defiant and if the government or some uh or some kind of municipality administrative actually have some regulations regarding religions and how to strengthen your religions like having to gather together and then read Quran and also adapa adapa is like a preach right they really love that and that affects how majority of that society works that's why in each city it's based on the municipality and based on the, its own administrative how it works so if it's a town that is um really tight a uh, really conservative they might even it's like uh, it's like a semi sharia but it's not really a sharia law that's why um uh, most people here went to a bigger city like jakarta or surabaya where most likely they find jobs or they want to have a higher education they always went there because it's more acceptable for those kind of community right given the social context that astrid provided it's evident that growing up as an lgbtq+ individual in indonesia is at best a challenge and at worst a risk to one's life in meeting with royce's friends to discuss their experiences with them I was nervous about what stories would come out of this meeting. There were, it seemed, certain privileges that came with growing up as queer in the West. Regarding the use of the term queer in Indonesia, I anticipated that, like in Japan, this word may have its own specific meaning and application. I was both right and wrong. The term queer is not widely used in Indonesia, but this lack of mainstream knowledge of queer means that for those wishing to covertly communicate their identities with one another calling yourself queer is safer than calling yourself lgbt one rainy night in jogjakarta i met royce at the university where we'd first talked and she introduced me to five of her friends i ferdi june alfie and vanya Vanya works at the university and offered her office space to us so that we could have our conversations in private and in a safe environment. We nestled into the room together and I explained I was to ask I, Ferdi, June and Alfie the same two questions. Firstly, what could they tell me about their experience of being queer or LGBT in Indonesia? And secondly, what can individuals from outside of Indonesia's LGBTQ+ community do to support this community and the causes that matter to them? Our first interviewee was I. I is a student at UGM, the university we were visiting, and is a member of Collective Tampanama, an LGBT community based in Jogjakarta who use their social media presence to educate on gender and sexuality matters. I is a closeted lesbian within her family, but was happy with sharing this information in our episode. So, being LGBT in Muslim majority uh, country with a very conservative family, it's it's hard. And I have two brothers in my family, and I am the only girl my parents have, and it's so hard that. I have to fit in this stereotypical feminine gender of a girl, and until I I figured 
out my sexuality like 15 years old and I find out that I'm a lesbian because I like uh, my classmate and it's a girl and it's it feels so weird because it's not common thing in Indonesia and I I got I got called with my mom and she assumed that my behavior changed because I don't know she just assumed things and then she said that are you a lesbian she asked me and I denied I denied myself because I'm afraid with a lot of my mom expectation of me my family expectation and how a girl should act and also how the heteronormativity norms in Indonesia and also by when my mom asked me about my sexuality and I said no and uh, she also threatened me with Rukia it's like uh, conversion therapy in Indonesia and uh, yeah it, it makes me more uh, afraid to tell her the truth I and June later explained to me that the Western equivalent of a rukya is conversion therapy, but a more direct translation would be to call it an exorcism. In extremely conservative factions of Islam, these communities will have a religious practitioner who is believed to be able to heal any disease. The method is based on the Sunnah Rasul, otherwise known as the habitual practice from Muhammad. The supposed intention is to heal the individuals of the disease or curse that has caused them to be non-heterosexual or non-cisgender. It goes without saying that a rukya is a humiliating and traumatic experience. I, I just, I always crying and, and kept denying my true identity. And, and, and that moment was very traumatic for me. And it was six years ago, but until now, I, I never be open everything with my mom because it just it just like making a border with me and my mom because yeah, there's a thing that I know she wouldn't ever accept about myself and to yeah to be a girl with a lot of family expectation and I should on my track with how a girl act, how a girl should present themselves, how a girl should marry a man, and it, it's, it's burdened me a lot. Also, uh, as a Muslim, uh, I, I was born in a Muslim family, I I forced to use a veil, it's like a, a hijab, and I'm not, I'm not feeling comfortable with that, and it's so hard for me to do to say to uh, my family the same as I have to say about my sexuality. So I have this double burden on my life. <laughs> and then I still keep my sexuality as a secret for years. And uh, yeah, it's because of that traumatic moment, I live in fear. and feel hopeless and ever had suicidal act. It was very terrible and I kept blaming myself uh, and feel like I'm a sinful person in the world. And 
Yeah, in fact, I am not actually. And yeah, most of this experience in six years, I have those fears. And until uh, 2016, it was the most terrible situation in Indonesia because the respectability said that LGBTQ student can enter the university. And that, that year was the year that I uh, entered the university. So it, it makes me more afraid and the, the traumatic just recalled. And uh, yeah, I, I, it, it made me to keep shut and I'm worried all my expectation about being more freely in university or more get more freedom of expression and those things. Just worried it and okay, I will keep this as a secret and just keep myself alive. But uh, until uh, maybe 2017, fortunately, I met a lot of open-minded people mostly the feminists in Yogyakarta and they talk a lot of intersectional uh, topics and it's like a new start of a new me that you can listen today like I have this courage I have this braveness to to tell you about this story about the background of me to be an LGBTQ in Muslim family in a conservative family and I'm very thankful for all of my friends that give me a lot of uh, support mostly the LGBTQ people in Yogyakarta and we, we support each other and also we we create this uh, safe space in Yogyakarta it's uh, it's my collective it's collective tanpa nama you can follow us in Instagram uh, we we share a lot of information about LGBTQ, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, gender expression, and sex characteristic in Bahasa Indonesia because we know that a lot of information about the LGBTQ is mostly in English and a lot of Indonesian kids maybe, the teenagers that still questioning about their sexuality needs more information and yeah, I, I just don't want other people feel the same experience with me about uh, being rejected by the family and denied about ourselves, our our colors, and yeah, I just want to spread this place that you you can tell us every story about you and just don't feel like you are alone. That you're not alone because you have us. If you are interested in learning more about the collective Tampanama, you can find their website via the LGBTQ resources page on the Slash Queer website. The time between interviews was brief, and as I reeled from Ai's story, I shared with her the fact that I too have suffered the loss of a relationship with my own mother due to my involvement with someone of the same sex when I was 15. I remarked on how strange and amazing it was that two people growing up on other sides of the planet could have such similar experiences. It was hard to figure out whether or not this was something to be reassured by or disappointed about. 
Ferdi was the next to share his story. As a closeted gay Christian man and postgraduate theology student living in Jogjakarta, I was curious to hear what his experience was like navigating his faith and sexuality in a conservative, Muslim-majority environment. Well, uh, it's a long story. Not, not too long, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt I'm, I was different, but I had never think about it somehow. I, I preferred to play with girls, which is uh, in Indonesia, the culture is if the boys plays with girls and the parents, I don't know, it's my parents only or the other parents, they, they were mad at me. No, boys should not play with girls. But I just comfortable playing with girls. Uh, but I never realized that I'm different until I hit my puberty when I was in junior high school. I just feel that it's strange. Like, why am, why am I different with, with the others? With the others boys and because uh, these things I never knew about these things before it's it's totally strange there is no education or information about what is gay what is LGBT what is homosexuality I never heard about it even in school in church or from from my family I never heard about it and also, there's there no one like that in, in my family, as I knew it. But I tried to find the information uh, about it on the internet. And as a Christian, I found some, some resources that say that it, it's, it's a sin. It's, it's, it's totally a sin. It's wrong. Maybe I'm condemned or I should be condemned, uh, should be go to hell. And she'll change, change my sexual orientation. So it, it makes me so... I just pray like every day, uh, God, please makes me straight. Please makes me straight, straight man. I, I did it for like six years. Six years. From, from the first time I, I hit my puberty, like in, in, in the first grade of my junior high school, until until I graduated from senior high school. I go to college, I go to university. I took Bachelor of Theology because actually my dream was about to be a pastor from a child. It, it has nothing to do with my sexual orientation. It just, I want to be a pastor. Then I took it, I, I took uh, theology. Then I'm, I was so blessed that I went to the theological school who somehow support LGBTIQ people. Like they talk about it uh, in an academic way. They have uh, progressive biblical hermeneutics about LGBT. So I learned about it and it took one year until I can accept myself as a gay. And Christian at the same time, and I think it's it's important for me. It's really important for me to to be to to accept myself as a gay. But I haven't come out to my parents yet until now. There are many many things to be considered because I'm the only child in my family, 
and that's uh, quite a problem because in Indonesia that you know every family one they will have uh, like descendant they will have child and their child will marry someone and build a new family and give birth and you know my parents want want to have grandchildren something like that so yeah it's it's a cultural thing in Indonesia and then so it makes me think to not to come out yet to my parents and to hold my family but somehow as a gay who has feeling who has uh, I just want to have experience like how is it being love how is it like having relationship with another man freely I like because I'm the only child and my parents always know where I'm going where where am I every time they should know like who are my friends they should know so I just kind of uh, I'm, I'm restricted to have friends I'm restricted to you know not not freely cannot express myself cannot cannot have LGBT friends so I, I quietly uh, like use dating application. I just want to have experience how 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 is it having relationship with, with men? I mean, like, why 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 the, the heterosexual people can freely have like that, but why I cannot? I mean, like, it's not fair. It's not fair for me. Uh, finally, I had some relationship with with, with a man, uh, a few men. And then someone introduced me a platform or a community or a forum that that people uh, can join and talk about religion and sexuality at the same time. So it's an uh, organization that focus on the interreligious and also sexuality diversity. They have a program called Queer Camp, and I joined that. So that's the place that I can feel like I'm at home. So I just continue my theological study, and until now I have kind of perspective that well I accept that firstly I'm I was born as a sexual being, then a religious being is the other thing. The next after I become a sexual being, the first I'm a sexual being. So I cannot ignore me. It's the way I am. It's the way I live as a being, as 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 a human. Sexuality is 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 my nature. It's 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 given, and I I embrace it. It's it's as a God's grace for me. Based on the experiences that you've had, um, I wanted to ask you. Is there anything that individuals outside of the LGBTQ plus community of Indonesia can be doing to support your community? You know that in Indonesia, most people think that being a gay or being a queer is something that is not indigenously, something not indigenous. I mean, like, they are from outside. They are from... From West, West, and I, I just think that how possibly that people think like this. So I just hope that when outside people see the reality here in Indonesia, they can also share 
share experience and also share knowledge that it's not a, a strange thing it's not only from west it's it just can happen uh, to everyone anywhere like it doesn't belong to any race or it doesn't belong to any countries it's just about humanity it's just people so i hope that we can share about this the dialogue about you know the struggle as a human being as a sexual being and also to educate people like but sometimes the matter is like this if people from outside try to educate people here they think they oh no it's 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 from west it's not it's not east culture it's not eastern culture i mean like they don't understand us something like that so i think they can also encourage people like from here to to share this experience to so so we can have dialogue although both i and ferdi's stories are unique and distinct in their own ways there were undeniable parallels both brought up the issue of familial obligation and social roles i being expected to behave as girls and women are supposed to in indonesian society with a presumption of heterosexuality inextricably intertwined into that expectation. Ferdi also struggles with the assumption that he will eventually marry and provide grandchildren to his parents. Both also struggle with the religious aspect of their identities, I resisting her family's highly conservative, more extreme Islamic beliefs and convictions, and Ferdi endeavouring to make peace with being both a gay man and a Christian, In these interviews, two pillars of Indonesian society are evident, faith and family. Of course, neither of these are threatened by LGBT rights and self-expression, but the cis-normative, heteronormative foundations upon which both concepts are built will need to be addressed and adapted if people like I and Ferdi are to find support, solidarity and acceptance in wider Indonesian society. I and Ferdi's requests for outside engagement were clear and unambiguous. Mental health support and education is necessary to dispel myths regarding LGBT identities, and many Indonesians will only listen to other Indonesians on these kinds of matters. As Ferdi said, this is not a matter of race or culture, but of humanity. Indonesians don't need to hear stories from Western LGBTQ plus culture. They need to hear about the experiences and struggles of their fellow citizens. And in our next episode, we will be sharing June and Alfie's stories, with the intention of shedding light on what it means to be binary and non-binary transgender individuals growing up in Indonesia. Tune in next time for part two of Queer Voices in Jogjakarta. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay and scripted and produced by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Astrid Febrianti for her help on this episode and episode 7, and to I, Verdi, Vanya, and Royce for their contributions. Thanks once again to my Patreon subscribers who are still supporting this project in the midst of widespread financial uncertainty and a global crisis. 
These stories are now being listened to in 52 countries around the world, and it is exciting and heartwarming to know that, in spite of our struggles, we are connecting as a community, and you're helping make this happen. If you're not a Patreon, and you fancy pitching in to make these episodes happen, you can find the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. I'm grateful for anything that you can give to this work, no matter how small your contribution. This episode was recorded on location in Jogjakarta, Indonesia. Music in this episode was composed by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at at slash queer, or email us at slash queer at outlook.com. In spite of all that we face in these uncertain times, remember to stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer. You can see that on the news in 2017 that happens because they suspect uh, some uh, homo activity. That's what <laughs> I think I need to rename my podcast Some Homo Activity. <laughs> exactly. That was so cool. <laughs>